is Matt Keller. I am the lead pastor of Next Level Church here in Fort Myers, Florida. I want to say a quick welcome to uh, churches who are doing a God of the Underdog series. We're just so honored and privileged to be able to be with you this weekend in whatever church you're in across the United States of America or across the world. Welcome. It is our honor to be with you. Also want to welcome any overflow sections that we have in any of our services here this weekend in Southwest Florida at Next Level Church. We're just so pumped that you are with us, engaging with the message. We're just so honored that you're with us in overflow. Good to see you guys. Well, this weekend we are talking about connection. We're talking about this idea of friendship, of of connections in our life. We're talking about love. And uh, let me start by uh, asking us this question. Have you ever had anyone in your life that you would describe as hard to love? Now, I'm sure every single one of us, even at just simply hearing that question, can think of somebody, maybe it was a boss, you know, back in the day, and you thought, man, as much as I tried, I just could not love that person. Like, they were, they were hard to love. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's an employee, and you look for a way to fire them, but you just couldn't seem to figure it out because they were hard to love. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's the guy, you know, three doors down at the office and you're like, man, I just, I've tried and I've tried. I just can't seem to love that guy. Or maybe, you know, it was a classmate back in elementary school. And you think about that person and you're like, man, they're just, that person was hard to love. Maybe it's a family member. I don't know. Maybe it was an in-law, <laughs> which is not the time to say amen, right? There. Like, don't just know that just let that one go by. There'll be other chances to say Amen. Later on, I'm just telling you, because in-laws always get tagged, don't they, as being hard to love. Ever had an in-law problem? Again, don't, don't raise your hand. No, no, no. There's no possible scenario where that ends well for you. Don't do it. I'm just telling you. Well, this weekend in all of our services, we're going to look at, a, at an underdog who had an in-law problem, who had an in-law, in fact, who was hard to love. And that underdog is David, King David. And, and I want us to look at this idea of connection or friendship or in this idea of love uh, from a unique perspective, from a, a unique story that we find in the Old Testament, in the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, this idea of, 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 of love, of friendship, of a heart bond of connection. That's what we're going to be looking at from a unique angle through the life of David. Let me kind of set the background for us. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, David goes from shepherd boy to chosen to be king. I mean, talk about an underdog. Here's a guy who, uh, you know, is, is living in obscurity, kind of the runt of the family out in the field. And then in one night, his life completely gets turned upside down. He goes from being, you know, runt of the family, outcast, shepherd boy, kind of forgotten to being chosen by Samuel the prophet and anointed to become the next king when King Saul, the present king of Israel, moves off the scene. David was chosen by the prophet to become the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, that's what we discover. Then in 1 Samuel 17, the very next chapter, we see the army of Israel there on the side of a hillside with their king, Saul, who was one of the warriors of Israel, facing the Philistine army. And the Philistines sent uh, one of their gigantic warriors, uh, a giant in fact, named Goliath, into the valley. And uh, King Saul, it was his responsibility as kind of the commander-in-chief of the army to fight Goliath, but he was too afraid, he was too scared, and so consequently the rest of the army was scared until 40 days into this giant named Goliath taunting the children of Israel... David shows up to deliver some sandwiches to his brothers who were soldiers in the army. And when he hears Goliath taunting 
not only the people of God, but taunting God himself. David's like, someone needs to do something about this. And so that day, David grabs a slingshot, five smooth stones, rushes into the valley. And we all, probably many of us have heard the story, slays Goliath, kills them, which inspires the army of Israel. They rush the valley and push the Philistine army back and win a great, great victory that day. Well, on that day, David goes, once again, this underdog named David comes into national prominence. He becomes a national war hero. And so King Saul, watching all of this happen, it calls, it summons uh, David over to him and starts asking him questions about who he is and who his father is and where he comes from. And of course, King Saul, ever the opportunist, looks on at this, this young David, this underdog and who, who just slayed Goliath, this now this war hero, and he says, listen, I think you could be helpful for me. And so he gives him a job as, as one of the leading commanders in the army. And then he says, instead of going home to your dad, I want you to come live with me in the palace. And so David moves into the palace with King Saul, and a couple of things happen when he gets in the palace. The first thing is Saul had a daughter named Michael. And when we study scripture, what we discover in 1 Samuel 18 is that Michael, Saul's daughter, was digging David's chili. She was hot for David. And she starts looking at this young, rudy, kind of good-looking, handsome dude, and she's like, underdog. And so she's digging David. And so Michael and David start to fall in love. A second thing that begins to happen when David moves into the palace of King Saul is that Saul's son, Jonathan, and David strike up a friendship. And where we pick up the story this weekend in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see this interaction between David and Jonathan, this, this bond, this friendship, this connection that begins to form between them. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1 says this, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. So there's this bond, this friendship that starts to form. Verse 2, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. They formed this this bond this this covenant this they were they became blood brothers so to speak like there was something deep there verse four jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to david along with his tunic and even his sword his bow and his belt what's happening there basically this there was such a a bond between david and jonathan these two friends in the palace the son of Saul, Jonathan and David, uh, there's such a heart bond, such a friendship that they form a covenant with one another to the point that at one point, Jonathan actually takes off his robe and his belt and his sword and he gives them all to David. And he basically was saying to David, David, listen, I want to make sure that whenever someone sees you throughout the kingdom, wherever you go, wherever you are in the city, whenever someone sees you, it is as if they are seeing me. That this heart bond was so real between them that Jonathan, in essence, was saying, it is as if the king has another son. That's how you are to be seen from now on. Now, that's friendship. That's a connection. That's love, isn't it? Well, so things are cruising along fine, and David's living in the palace, and sure enough, he and Michael get married, and they're off to a good start and so forth. But unfortunately... When Saul starts to see all of this happening, he's not real keen of this. Look at verse 12. It says, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed 
from Saul. All of a sudden, Saul starts watching this day after day in the palace, and he notices that God's hand is on David, that his favor, that this anointing, this influence is in, in David is rising. And at the same time, Saul is looking at his own self and his own influence, and he's realizing that his is starting to decrease, and David's is starting to increase, and so it scares him. It starts to freak him out. And then all of a sudden, Saul starts to realize how his daughter, Michael, is falling in love with David and how they have this amazing bonding connection. And so jealousy and anger start to rise up inside of Saul until by the end of the chapter, verse 28, look, it says this, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his life days. Saul would spend the rest of his life trying to take out his son-in-law. Now that is an in-law problem. (laughs) Can you imagine? Family Thanksgiving is horrible. And so David goes on the run. As 1 Samuel 18 moves into 1 Samuel 19 and 20, the next couple of chapters, David goes into hiding. He goes on the run and he's forced to to leave the palace, leave Michael, leave his friend Jonathan and start to to hide out in these small remote little towns because Saul, the king, has, has commissioned his army to hunt David down and kill him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20... Saul has once again commissioned his army. He hears that David is hiding out in this little town, and so he sends his army down there to find David and bring him back to the king dead. And as David is slipping out of town in 1 Samuel chapter 20, he comes across Jonathan, his friend, his blood brother, this guy that he's just best friends with, this guy that he has a soul connection with. And we find this interesting exchange happening. Look, it says this, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah, And went to Jonathan and asked him, what have I done? What is my crime? He kind of gets a little lay mis right there. He's like, what have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done to become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run? Or whatever. They won't let me sing anymore. (laughs) Hugh Jackman, what up? Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Woo! Sorry about that. So there's David. He finds Jonathan and he's like, Jonathan, what is going on? Why is your dad crazy? Why does he want to kill me? Look, how have I wronged your father? That he's trying to take my life. And in that moment, Jonathan instantly starts to stand up to him. He's like, no, listen, man, I got your back. Never is that going to look. Verse 2, never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. It's not going to happen that way, man. I'm standing with you. David, trust me. I got your back on this, man. Our friendship is too strong. I know my dad too well. I won't let you down. And then in verse 4, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, makes an interesting statement. Look, he says, Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Now pause for a second because... This is such an interesting, pivotal moment, not just in this story, but really in the history of the nation of Israel, and as we're about to find out in a few minutes, in our story as well. Because see, the rightful heir to the throne was the king's son. The person who should have been submitting in this scenario was David to Jonathan. 
If anybody had a right to pull rank right here, it was Jonathan. If anybody had a right to, to say, hey, you work for me, it was Jonathan. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. But here's the thing, Jonathan, this, this best friend of David, looked at the scenario and he began to realize and understand God's hand is on David. God's hand is on this new leader, this new bloodline, this new direction that God wants to take our nation in. And God's hand is lifting off of my dad and me and our family tree. And in this moment, in complete role reversal, Jonathan submits to David and he says, whatever you want me to do, tell me to do it. And they have this exchange and they start to share and they start to dialogue about what this can look like. And then in verse 14, Jonathan makes this interesting remark. He says to David, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Look at this. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. In this moment, Jonathan recognizes that his family is going to end up on the losing end of this thing. That when this whole deal goes down, David is going to rise to prominence and become king. And when he does, it will be right and appropriate to alleviate and to get rid of the bloodline of Saul, including him, and all of his offspring and servants. And Jonathan, in this moment, turns to David and he says, listen, show me kindness. Look, verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Notice this, that in this moment, when Jonathan wakes up to the realization that his family tree, that his bloodline is going to be eradicated from the earth and David is going to win the day, he looks at David and in that moment, he makes a covenant, not just with his friend David, he's already done that. He makes a covenant with the house of David. In other words, for as long as our two families exist, promise me, David, that you will look out for me and my family, that this bond, this friendship, this connection, this covenant that they made in this moment suddenly went from being two guys who were friends to becoming two families who were now bonded together, trans-generations. And they do. So then they start to talk, and he's like, what do you want me to do for you? And David says, well, it turns out your dad's throwing a party tomorrow night at the palace, and I'm supposed to be there, but here's the problem. When I go to stuff like that, I never know which Saul I'm going to get. Am I going to get crazy Saul or am I going to get, yeah, what's up, bro, Saul? And so David says, I can't go to the party. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to the party, kind of tell me what mood your dad is in. And Jonathan's like, great, got it, done. So the next night they, they, depart, they part ways, which will become the last moment that they ever spend face to face. And Jonathan leaves and he goes back to the palace and David goes his way and goes back into hiding. 
And the next night rolls around, and sure enough, there's a party at the palace, and there's Saul sitting at the head of the banquet table, and all of the people and guests are there. And there's Michael, his daughter, sitting down there, and then Jonathan, his son, sitting next to her. But in between them is an empty chair. And so Saul starts to inquire about this. He says, hey, where's David? Where, Michael, where's your hubby? Where's he at? Jonathan, where's your boy? Where's your friend? Where's your buddy? And in that moment, Jonathan starts to stand up for David, and he starts to push back on his dad, and he starts to defend David, which only in that moment enrages Saul. And in a fit of rage, look at this, verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, his own son. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Pause right there. That is biblical proof that we have grounds to call out each other's mama. Right there. It's in scripture. Next time you feel it and you're just feeling it, you're feeling it, you're like, your mom. Totally biblical. You have total Bible grounds to do that. My mom probably wishes that weren't true, but it's in there. I don't know what to tell you. So there's Saul, and he sees Jonathan standing up for David, and he starts cursing the mom. Of course, I think it's funny because the mom's probably sitting right next to Saul, which is hilarious. She's probably like, hey, right? Look, it goes on. Don't I know, Saul says to his own son, that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. There it is again, verse 31. As long, look at this, as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, Neither you nor your kingdom will be... Don't you get it, Jonathan? As long as David is alive, we lose. He was so mad, verse 33. He hurled his spear at him, his own son, to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. In that moment, all of a sudden, this bond, this covenant, this friendship between Jonathan and David went to a whole nother level. All of a sudden, in that moment, Jonathan realized this friendship with David could be deadly. Fast forward the story, about 13 chapters to the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. And you find a long period of time has gone by and King Saul and his son Jonathan are in battle with the army of Israel once again. And they're fighting, of all people, coincidentally, the Philistines. And the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel tells us that the battle wasn't going very well, that God had indeed lifted his hand off of Saul and the army was losing to the point that during the battle, Jonathan, King Saul's son, perished. And King Saul can feel the army of the Philistines, which parenthetically, isn't it interesting that Goliath was from the army of the Philistines? Goliath was Saul's to fight, not David's. Isn't it interesting that the giants we refuse to fight will end up coming back to destroy us one day? So there's King Saul on the battlefield, having watched his son perish at the hand of the Philistines, and suddenly he finds the Philistine army coming closer and closer and closer until he looks at his, his armor bearer, his little sword uh, um, protector, and he looks at him and he hands him his sword and he says, do me in. Do me in. I can't stand to be, be killed by the Philistine army. And the servant boy looks back at, at King Saul, mighty King Saul, and he says, I will not touch the king. I will not harm the king. 
And Saul says, fine, give me the sword. And he takes the sword himself. And the Bible records at the end of 1 Samuel that he runs himself through. And that day on the battlefield with the Philistines, both Jonathan and King Saul perished in battle. And as 1 Samuel turns to 2 Samuel, we find a messenger who's commissioned with giving David, the underdog David, the news. And the messenger shows up and finds David and announces to him that both his king and his friend, Jonathan, have perished in battle. Rather than being excited about the fact that his chance has finally come, rather than looking at the opportunity of going, yes, my dream of being king of our nation is coming true. This is it. Saul's finally out of the way. Instead, the first two chapters of the book of 2 Samuel record David entering into a season of mourning and weeping, both for his king, but even more for his friend Jonathan. And David is distraught. He's overwhelmed at the loss of this blood brother, at the loss of this friend named Jonathan. And so after the season of mourning passes, David is brought into Jerusalem and there anointed king. And he takes his rightful place of kingship over the nation of Israel. And for the next several years, David leads the charge. And it's amazing. It's everything you and I and he would have dreamt. Every army that they face, they conquer. Every battle they fight, they win. Their their kingdom is expanding. People are happy. They're prospering. God's hand of anointing and favor and blessing truly is on David and his nation. And for the next several chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, David is just winning and he is on a mountaintop. He is in the palace, in the Oval Office, living the dream. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we find an interesting exchange that takes place. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 9, as David is living his dream, he's he's in the palace, he's, he's in the Oval Office, perhaps on a lunch break, feet on the desk for sure, probably eating Pringles. Certainly wasn't eating Sun Chips. with servants gathered around on his mountaintop, living his destiny. David grabs a servant and he says, hey, come here, I have a question for you. And there, sitting at his desk, on his lunch hour, he looks at his servant and he asks a peculiar question. Look at verse 1. David asks, is is there anybody left? from the house of Saul. Is, is, there, is there anybody at all left from the house of Saul that I could show kindness to for the, for the sake of my friend Jonathan? Now with this, the servant standing there before King David is probably thinking to himself, are you kidding No, of course there's no one left. King, why are you bringing up the bloodline of Saul? Why are you doing this? Do you not understand that we have spent the last several years since you took office trying to get rid of every family member, every relative, every servant, anyone remotely connected with the family of Saul? We have tried to eradicate. 
Why in the world are you asking if there's anyone left? But then the servant stands there before his king who's asked a legitimate question and he thinks to himself for a moment and then he comes up with an answer. He says, you know what? Actually, there there was a servant of Saul's named, named Ziba. And so David's like, well, go get him. And so they summoned Ziba to appear before David. And, and when he walks in, the king looks at him and he says, hey, are you Ziba? And Ziba looks back at his king and he goes, at your service. <laughs> Listen, I understand what Ziba's feeling right here. Because he's probably thinking, man, I kind of like slipped under the radar the last few years. I mean, I kind of worked in Saul's house and kind of, you know, hung out with that family. But man, once the kind of changing of the guard, like Zeba's like, dude, I think we made it, right? And then all of a sudden he gets a knock on the door. You Zeba? Yeah. Want to work for Saul? Yeah. King wants to see you. No. <laughs> like Zeba's got to be freaking out. And so when he walks in, he's like, oh, King David, you know. David's like, you Ziba? He's like, at your service. Gotta love the king. He's got his I love David button on. Like, he's like, David, David, David. (laughs) Right? Like, like he is into, I am pro David, baby. Woo, David, what up? Right? Okay, Ziba's thinking, I gotta cover something because this is scary. Watch what happens next. The king asks Ziba a question. He says, is there still left of the house of Saul? Is there no one still left that I can show God's kindness to? Of course, Ziba, when he hears the word kindness, is probably like, whoo, that's good news. Look at Ziba. He says, you know what? There's one guy left. There's still a son of Jonathan. But uh, King, uh, he's lame. Like he's... Both feet. He's lame in both feet. I, I, and I, I mean, with all due respect, I mean, it's, yeah, there's one son of Jonathan left, but um, sir, he's, he's a throwaway. Like he is in their culture, like being lame and both, like he, he's, he's of no use to you. Like I don't, it, it, uh, you're a busy guy and there's a lot to do running a kingdom like this. And if I don't have to remind you that this is like the golden age of Israel. Like we are winning on every side. The last thing you need, sir, is a, a, one more lame guy to take care of. And look at what David says. Where is he? You're telling me that a son of Jonathan exists? A son of my best friend? It's still alive. Where is he? And Ziba thinks about it for a second, and he says, well, I think the last time anybody heard from him, he was, he was in the house of Makir, son of Emil, down in uh, this little bitty town in the middle of nowhere called Lodabar, which if you look up the, the meaning of the word Lodabar, it literally means nowhere, nothing. Mephibosheth is his name. We're going to find out in a moment. This lame son of Jonathan was hiding out literally in the middle of nowhere, flying under the radar, trying not to be found. Talk about a guy who has the wrong connections. It's a lame guy, a cultural throwaway, a cultural underdog of no value from the wrong family. 
Look at verse 5. King David had him brought from nothing to the palace. Imagine being Mephibosheth. There you are, lame in both legs. You're already a cultural throwaway. You're already worthless to the world around you. And some servant of King David shows up and knocks on your door and says that the king wants to see you. Imagine what he must have been thinking after all these years, trying to hide under the radar, trying to cause no disruption whatsoever. After all, he's lame. After all, he's of no worth to the, to the culture, no value. And then someone knocks on the door and says, David wants to see you. I would imagine that when, when Mephibosheth came into the palace that day, he must have been shaking, scared to death, thinking, surely the king wants to do me in himself. Verse 6 says that when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David, seeing Mephibosheth, looks into his faith, and says, Mephibosheth, it's you. And unfortunately, the printed page of Scripture doesn't give us a view into the emotion that David must have felt that day when the only son left of his best friend, Jonathan, entered the room I can imagine in in that moment, David looked into the eyes of Mephibosheth and instead of seeing the eyes of a lame man, a cultural throwaway, I can only imagine that David saw the eyes of his friend, Jonathan, the one that he was in covenant with, the one he had such a heart soul bond with. And when Mephibosheth is carried into the king's presence that day, David can't help himself. And he cries out, Mephibosheth, I remember you crawling around your dad and I's feet. But Mephibosheth isn't tracking. He isn't getting it. And so he, he looks back at the king and he's bowed down. And he says, at your service, Mephibosheth cannot imagine a scenario in the world where this would somehow end well for him. And so he says what is the only thing appropriate in that moment when you think the king wants to do you in himself. He says, I'm at your service. But look at the response, verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat always at my table. David looks at Mephibosheth, this this cultural throwaway, this, this lame underdog, and he says to him, Listen, you're a son of Jonathan. makes you a son of mine. And everything your grandpa ever had, 
I'm giving to you. For the rest of your life, you're with me now. You're going to be considered a son of the king. But again, Mephibosheth's not getting it. He's not tracking. He cannot fathom in his mind. And so he looks back at the king, verse 8, and he says, What is your servant? You should notice a dead dog. He calls himself an underdog. A dead dog like me. King David, I don't get it. And David looks at Mephibosheth at that moment and he says, Once upon a time, your dad and I were friends. Once upon a time, your dad and I had a connection. And you were too young to remember. Once upon a time, your dad and I made a covenant, a bond, that we would forever take care of each other's family. You guys, that's love. That's friendship. That's a connection. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, oh Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. And then he gives Ziba a new job description. Look at this. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then look at this parenthetical aside that the Bible kept in there. And I'm so glad it did. Look, now Ziba had 15 sons. He loved his wife. <laughs> My boy, Ziba. Wow. You don't got to like kids. You just got to like your wife. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Think of it. The destiny and future of 36 people was forever changed that day because of a bond between two friends. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And David took care of him for the rest of his life. Life. That's love. That's friendship, you guys. That is connection. Such a powerful story, isn't it? And so listen, my challenge to us this weekend is twofold. First, I would ask us the question, do you have any Jonathans in your life? Got anybody like that that's a soul friend? That's a David and Jonathan thing. Guys, listen, that's what our connection groups here at Next Level Church are all about. This is the easiest on-ramp that we know how to create to give every single one of us an opportunity to find some Jonathans. Listen, I look across my life when I read this story, when I reflect and recall this story, I look at my life and I thank God for the Jonathans I have. Some from long ago, some from right now. 
And I'm so thankful that I don't have to do life alone. So listen, this weekend, if you're here at Next Level Church, my challenge to you is don't miss the opportunity to take advantage of our connection groups to find a Jonathan. Because we believe that God will meet us with some friendships like that that truly have the power to change our life. And then my second challenge to us this weekend and all of our services and all of our overflow is this. Do you know that you're like Mephibosheth, right? We get that, don't we? That, see, by virtue of the fact that you and I are a part of the human race, that we're human beings, the, 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 the human condition is flawed because of sin, the Bible says. In other words, because of the sin nature inside of us, because of sin in our world and specifically in our life, you and I are lame. We're imperfect. We're flawed. And the Bible tells us that God is a perfect, loving God, but He is a perfect and just God. And here's what that means. That means that because of our human condition, because of the sin nature inside of us, because we're imperfect and because God is perfect, there is now a gap. We now find ourselves outside of the palace we now find ourselves unable to connect with the king. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how good of a person we are, no matter how, how much good we do, how much we give, how much we serve, no matter how, how hard we try, we can never measure up to the perfect standard of our God. We're from the wrong bloodline. Ours has sin in it. But see, the Bible tells us that a grandson from the bloodline of David, 28 generations later, was named Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. And he shed his blood on a cross so that you and I, fallen, broken, sin filled, lame dogs could know what it is to walk in his grace and be united with the king. You and I have the ability to sit at the king's table for eternity. Thanks to Jesus, the son of of David. So here's what we're going to do this weekend. I want to give us an opportunity to respond to that because I believe it's possible that there are many of us who've come into one of our services this weekend or you're sitting in overflow or maybe you're in another church somewhere and you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to give us an opportunity to do that. The Bible says it's free gift. It, we can't be earned. It's, it's God's grace to us. Like David showed grace to Mephibosheth, it's God's grace through Jesus to us. So here's what I want to ask us to do. In all of our services, all of our environments, can we just bow our heads for a moment? This is a personal moment between you and God. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond to that grace today. 
If you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ to say, to accept him in as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you have in the past, but you know you've walked away from that, this is a perfect time to come back to him, to say yes once again. I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out or do anything weird. I just want to give you a chance to say yes to that. And I want to give you an opportunity to, to give expression to that on the outside of what you might be feeling and are feeling on the inside. So I'm going to count to three. And when I hit three, all over this place, in every environment, would you just slip your hand up right where you are if you want to say yes to your relationship with Jesus Christ? If that's you, say yes. One, two, three. Would you just slip your hand up right now? Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great. Once you put it up, you can put it back down. Fantastic. Great. Fans, every section, I know it's happening. Every service, God's touching hearts, drawing people to himself. If you want to say yes, just slip your hand Matt, include me in. I, I want to say yes to your relationship with Jesus Christ. I want him to forgive me so that I can be seated at the table of the king. Thank you. Awesome, thanks. People still responding. Anybody else? Every service, if that's you, just slip your hand up. Fantastic. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray. So whatever service you're in, I'm going to say a a phrase of a prayer, and I want you to repeat it back. And whether you raised your hand or not, all of us included, just to make sure everybody's comfortable. Can we all pray this together? And it's not the words we pray. It's what's happening in our heart on the inside. But the Bible says that there's power in confession. There's something powerful that happens when we speak it out. With the heart, we believe it. With the mouth, we confess. And so I just want to lead us in a simple prayer. And give every single one of us in all of our services an opportunity to pray that together. So every single one of us, those who raised our hand and even those who didn't, let's pray this together. Say, Dear Jesus, thanks for loving me and bringing me to this place. Thank you for seeing me in my lame condition, in my sinful condition. Thank you for forgiving me. I say yes to you, Jesus. I invite you in to be first place in my life. Thank you for your grace and that I am seated at the table of the king. Father, right now I thank you that each one of us in our brokenness and our lameness can come to you. And Jesus, I pray that as we go from this place in just a few minutes that you would infuse our relationships. God, I can't help but think of so many who perhaps are here who look at the David and Jonathan thing and go, I don't have that, but I want to. And so, Lord, I just cover them in prayer even now and ask you, Jesus, that in the coming days and weeks ahead that that Jonathan-type relationship would begin to emerge in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for connection this weekend in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed in every service said, Amen.